Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. This episode is sponsored by Dr. Bob Turner. Dr. Turner sponsored this episode and an episode last week. And if you want me to cover something in Canadian history, well, you just got to sponsor an episode. It's pretty easy. You can go to either of those two links that I mentioned in the intro, CanadaEHX.com and click donate or buy me a cup of coffee. And we can chat about what you want me to cover and I'll be able to do it for you. In fact, I have a couple of episodes coming up from other listeners who have sponsored episodes and they should be really good ones. Long before Europeans and even the indigenous arrived, the area of Carberry was covered by immense glacial ice sheets that covered the entire landscape. Over the course of 30,000 to 10,000 years ago, these ice sheets would move north and south depending on the climate. As the last huge ice sheet began to melt around 13,000 years ago, the meltwater would create a lake that covered southeastern Manitoba, northwest Ontario, northern Minnesota, eastern North Dakota, and Saskatchewan. It was Lake Agassiz, and at its greatest extent, it covered an immense 440,000 kilometers, larger than any lake in the world and the size of the Black Sea. Through the centuries, it would drain in different directions, including into Lake Superior, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Arctic Ocean. The huge amount of freshwater draining would actually impact early human civilization. There's some evidence, although it's disputed, that the huge influx of fresh water into the ocean currents caused the sudden decrease in global temperatures around 6200 BCE. Some historians also believe that the immense draining of the lake may have also played a role in the certain flood myths of prehistoric cultures. The fertile soils of southern Manitoba are also thanks to this lake, as are the Carberry Sandhills, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Centuries before Europeans arrived, the Assiniboine River was a very important highway for the indigenous who would travel through the area to hunt and trade with other indigenous groups. The bison were found in the area and proved to be extremely important to the local indigenous who would use the animal not only for food, but items used in their day-to-day -day lives. 
The primary indigenous found in the area were the Cree and the Assiniboine, with some eastern groups such as the Ottawa and Ojibwa. Today the area sits on Treaty 1 and Treaty 2 land. The first bit of European settlement in the Carbere area started in the late 1760s when Pine Fort was established by a group of independent fur traders out of Montreal. While most forts were started by the Hudson's Bay Company and later the Northwest Company, Carberry was already unique with its independent birth. Originally called Pine Fort, it was set a central location for the trading amongst several indigenous groups, including the Assiniboine, the Sioux, the Cree, and the Ottawa. Eventually the fort was taken over by the Northwest Company before it was abandoned in 1811 as the Pemmican War between the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company kicked off. With the fort abandoned, the First Nations people began to move through the area and reside there until 1870 when Europeans began to arrive again. As for Carberry, it would be incorporated as a community in 1882. Most of the early settlers were British and they would name the community after Carberry Tower, located in Scotland. That same year, the CPR established a station at DeWinton, a former town that was 3.5 kilometers east of Carberry. The town quickly grew and had stores, a post office, grain warehouse, and a hotel. Unfortunately for DeWinton, several CPR officials purchased much of the property for the new town in the hopes of gaining big profits when the town grew around the train station. This was against the rules of the CPR, and once the ruse was discovered, the company hired 100 men to physically move the train station to the present site of Carberry in the spring. The move was done in the space of 12 hours in the middle of the night. This was the beginning of Carberry, and the first building in the new town would be that CPR station. As for DeWinton, well, it would fade into history. In 1890, the Carberry News Express building was built, and it became an important part of the early community. At the time it was built, it did not house the newspaper. That would come years later. First, it was occupied by a pool hall and barber shop, and over the years, the building became an important part of the social and business life of Carberry. Made of brick, this structure was part of a line of historic buildings found in the downtown core of Carberry, which I will talk about later. Canada's greatest flying ace of the First World War and a legendary figure in Canadian aviation, Wap May, was born in Carberry in 1896. After his family moved to Edmonton in 1902, May would enlist in the First World War and shoot down 13 enemy aircraft that are confirmed, along with five others. There is also the belief that it was he, not fellow Canadian Arthur Brown or Australians on the ground, who shot down the Red Baron himself. May was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1918, and he left the Air Force with the rank of Captain. May wasn't done with his legendary exploits there, though, and he would play a central role in both the race against death to deliver medicine to the North and the hunt for the Mad Trapper. I looked around and uh, this uh, red triplane was on my tail. If I had known it was Rick Stoven, I'd probably just died in my tracks. He was the best shot, I guess, in the German army, but he didn't hit me because I was slipping and sliding all over the sky, and he just couldn't make it. That was Wap May talking to a group of Boy Scouts back in 1952. This morning, Wap's own son, Danny, has just landed in our studio. Danny, let's get that name cleared up. Why, why was he called that? Well, it was kind of funny. Um, I don't know when it actually happened. It was certainly prior to the First War, but um, as a young man was over visiting a cousin, and um, the cousin was asked to say hello to your Uncle Wilfred, and she came out with Uncle Wappy, and it got shortened to Wap and stuck, and... Uh, it was as simple as that. Okay. And he really fought the 
Baron Manfred von Richthofen? Yeah, he ran away from him anyway and did it successfully. He's the only one that ever did. Well, that's a pretty good start. Yeah. What does a flying ace do when the war is over? Did he go right in and, 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 and uh, get a job flying somewhere? Well, he came back, as a lot of them did. Uh, Freddie McCall was another one from Calgary that did perhaps the same thing. Um, came back to home as a hero, dressed up in a... I think it was kind of like an acting job, in a way. Um, pictures I've seen with long white scarves and helmets and goggles and, and the bit, and you uh, got an airplane and you went flying and took people for rides. Had a great time. Um, it's called barnstorming. It was the process. How much did he charge? Became a mechanic for a little while. Uh, went with National Cash Register and eventually went back flying as the chief instructor of the uh, Edmonton Flying Club. And from there, um, I was called to do a mercy flight into the north and flew to uh, Fort Vermilion. This flight was well broadcast a year ago when we recreated that same flight back to Fort Vermilion in a biplane from here. Is this the originator of... Get the serum through? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, what kind of temperatures would he be flying in? Well, in that particular flight, it was temperatures down to minus 30 below the Fahrenheit. And uh, open, he, open cockpit. Open cockpit? Yeah, wheels, midwinter. What well, would he wear? Five suits of underwear? No, it's, um, I think he, there were a lot of wools, and he wore a, uh, I think it was a bearskin coat or something like that, but it was certainly a wool coat. And the other fellow with him, Vic Horner, was wearing a, a sheepskin lined and a, a leather coat. Now, what about the goggles? Wouldn't they freeze up or No, they didn't seem frost to. Over? The, he had frost problems because he was wearing a silk scarf, and that froze to his lips, apparently, on the way back. Um, that was probably How the worst romantic. thing. How <laughs> romantic. <laughs> How did he feel about being um, one of Canada's great legends? I mean, did, he, uh, did that sit easily on his shoulders? It seemed to. He um, wasn't... Um, uh, a braggart in any way. He was a very modest individual from my memories. Uh, just kind of an ordinary guy. I, I remember being with him once or twice when we were stopped on the street for an autograph, and, and he seemed as surprised as I, as I did at that point. But uh, it didn't, um, you know, he didn't run around saying, this is me and I'm great. He was just a, a nice guy, and that's the kind of legacy, I guess, that he left behind, is a lot of people thought that he was an awfully great man, and um, he was a good friend to many, many people. Sounds like a good father, too. He sure was. Denny, it's a pleasure talking to you about your father, Wap May. This is Denny May, remembering one of Canada's great legends. I covered both The Race Against Death and The Life of Wap May on the podcast very early in 2020. So be sure to check it out on my website, or it should be on my podcast feed. During the period of 1882 to 1903, the downtown core of Carberry was built in two linear blocks. This district would consist of 39 commercial and institutional buildings that form the commercial heart of Carberry. Covering 15,000 square meters of land, the entire district is now the historic downtown Carberry Heritage District. Many of the original buildings still stand, and the district today is an expression of the pride and sense of civic responsibility found in Carberry. Due to the historic nature of the district, it was made into a municipal heritage site in 2008, and today it is the only designated heritage district in all of Manitoba. In 1907, the old town hall was built in Carberry to handle the growing administrative needs of the community. The building would accommodate the town hall, but also the local jail. It also served as a meeting place for the community through the years. The war memorial is also located at the building, and in 2007 it was made a municipal heritage site. In 1909, Camp Sewell was established 10 kilometers west of Carberry. 
the military training camp would have its name changed to Camp Hughes in 1915 in honour of Major General Sir Sam Hughes, the Minister of Militia and Defence at the time. And he's a real piece of work. I talked about him on my other podcast, Canada's Great War. With the outbreak of the First World War, the camp took on a new role in training recruits. Extensive trench systems, grenade and rifle ranges and military structures were built during 1915 and 1916. The Edmonton Bulletin would write on March 30, 1915, quote, Camp Sewell in Manitoba will be opened May 1st, and most of the western troops of the 3rd Contingent will be mobilized there. A mile of targets, 500 in number, will be erected. Colonel William McBain will take charge. Colonel McBain, who designed Valcartier Camp, says that Sewell will be patterned after the big military site at Quebec. He says there will be sufficient room for all of Western troops. End quote. An estimated 38,000 soldiers from the Canadian Expeditionary Force trained at the camp, and the camp was, for a time, the largest settlement in the entire province after Winnipeg. Many of those soldiers would later take part in the Battle of Vimy Ridge, and most of the men would join the B Company of the 226th Battalion. The sight of all those men at the camp had a long-term impact on those in the community, as described in the local history book of the community, which states, quote, The writer well remembers being there with my father and seeing 4,000 men marching in from the west of the camp, four abreast. Their uniforms had red tunics left over from the Boer War. The uniforms were changed to khaki at the time, end quote. There were 18 battalions and two drafts of 100 officers in total sent overseas from Camp Hughes. During the war years of Camp Hughes, Harry Reid and Alfred Ashton served as the caretakers of the camp, and Annie Namer, whose husband was the caretaker of the camp, had a coffee shop for the troops at the camp from 1920 to 1934. In regards to the camp, it would continue to operate until 1934 when it was closed. It would reopen in the 1960s as a Cold War remote transmitter station until it was closed in 1992. Today, the camp is a National Historic Site of Canada thanks to the intact World War I battle terrain. It currently has one of the only World War I-era trench systems in the entire world. On January 12, 1911, a local woman named Hazel Margaret Ireland would marry a man by the name of Robert Young Eaton. That young man would go on to become president of Eaton's, and he married Hazel at St. Agnes's Church in Carberry. The event was described as such in the local history book, Carberry Plains, stating, quote, the T. Eaton Company brought a special train from Toronto with dining car, sleeping cars, and a parlor car, as well as personal silver, china, etc. for the reception, which was held on the train. The train was stationed on the side track of the south end of Selkirk Street, quite the event for our small town. End quote. By the time of the Second World War, Carberry was once again an important spot for the military. In December of 1940, troops from the Royal Air Force arrived and established the Service Flying Training School No. 33, which would be known as RCAF Station Carberry. The base would be part of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan and thousands of pilots from the Commonwealth would go through Carberry to train. The first contingent of the RAF would arrive on a cold day in December 1940, followed soon after by the wives and children of the ground staff and instructors at the camp. Like during the First World War, residents would remember the training in soldiers for many years. As related in their local history book, quote, The first planes were Harvards and were very noisy. They were followed by Ansons. Pilots from all over the British Empire got their wings here and were soon sent overseas into combat. End quote. Following the war, the base was disbanded and today is the site of the McCain Foods Processing Facility. 
Richard Burton, one of the greatest actors of the 1950s and 60s, who was nominated for seven Academy Awards, was posted in Carberry as a Royal Air Force instructor during the Second World War. In 1942, the Carberry Pentecostal Church was built as a modest-sized brick veneer structure. Standing on Main Street, it serves as an example of the congregation's commitment to establishing a permanent place of worship and community resource in the community. Part of the historic downtown core of Carberry, it was made a municipal heritage site in 2007. In 1964, a beautiful provincial park was created named Spruce Woods Provincial Park. This park, located in the Carberry Sandhills, occupies one of the few places in Canada where you can find sand dunes. It's not a true desert, but the remnants of the sandy delta of the Cinnaboyne River that drained from that giant lake. Within the sand dunes, there are many very unique flora and fauna to the area, including cacti and hognose snakes. Measuring at 269 square kilometers, it has also been designated as a dark sky preserve by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Within the park, there are several historic plaques that honor the Assiniboine, the role of entomologist Norman Criddle in the study of the natural history of the area, and of Manitoba, and Pine Fort's role in the growth of the area centuries ago. In 1970, the royal family stopped in Carberry in a very unique way. Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, and Princess Anne stopped for a rest period near the Bailey Farm. According to the local history book, quote, The royal family spent the morning riding the RCMP horses from the musical ride, which were there for the occasion. Later, a cup of coffee was shared with the Bailey family at their home. While the stop at the Bailey Farm may have seemed rather impromptu, it was planned in June of 1970, with the visit happening on July 13th. Roy Bailey rode a horse with the RCMP musical ride at the head of the group that went to the station to meet Queen Elizabeth, Prince Charles, and Princess Anne. Queen Elizabeth joined Roy for a ride around the farm, along with an officer of the RCMP. Roughly 40 minutes was spent relaxing and talking with the royal family, while enjoying fruit juice, coffee, and coffee cake. Before leaving, the Queen was presented with a plaque from the Baileys and a brooch in the form of a crocus, the floral emblem of Manitoba, which was presented by Kim Bailey, the granddaughter of Roy and Nora. The Queen then presented the family with an autographed picture, and Prince Philip suggested pictures of the family together. If you'd like to learn more about the history of Carberry, then you should visit the Carberry Museum and Gingerbread House. Within the museum, there are paintings, items owned by former residents like Tommy Douglas and Watt May, several exhibits also highlight the sports memorabilia of the various eras, and several decade-specific collections to show how Carberry has changed over the years. The museum itself is located in the former sash and door factory that was operated by a local man, James White. He would sell the building in 1939, and in 1979 it became the museum. Next to the museum, you will also find the fully restored gingerbread house. This unique building, with its fanciful architecture, is one of only three in all of Canada of its style. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Carberry, Manitoba. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, 
Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D, Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.